Greg, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you, my friend. Oh, my pleasure. You're welcome. I'd like to begin to talking about your career in law enforcement, your background. Uh, tell me about that. I got on, I actually started with um, uh, Sheriff's Department in Orange County, California. And part of the program with the Sheriff's Department, after you go through the academy, you typically go into the jail system and you start to kind of get a little bit seasoned and accustomed to dealing with the criminal element in a controlled environment. So I worked in the jail for several years and then I was always kind of, you know, um, attracted to the big city policing. And of course, you know, we're right next door to Los Angeles. And so I applied for the LAPD, had to go through another academy. And then once graduating, I went to a really active patrol division called Newton Division in South Central Los Angeles and began to, you know, learn about how to be a, a patrol officer. And uh, I, did, I did relatively well. And so I quickly kind of was adopted into a gang unit. We used to call it Crash back in the 80s and 90s. It was a anti-gang unit. And um, I started to get to know, you know, all of the working kind of mores and methods of gangs. And then I got into narcotics and began to work major narcotics and then ultimately got into homicide and finished my career working out of our robbery homicide division in, uh, in downtown LA. How hard was it to work up the ranks? I know here in New York, the homicide divisions, whether you're in law enforcement or in a prosecutor's office is kind of the cream of the crop. Is that the same uh, on the West Coast? Yeah, because of course the homicide um, responsibilities are as, as great as they can be in law enforcement. I mean, you're dealing with the loss of human life and, or the taking of human life. And so, you know, you really need to be equipped to really do thorough investigations. And you learn that through the steps of doing lesser um, um, intense or uh, lesser complicated investigations. So you kind of work your way up, but you do kind of, you know, you got to cut it, keep your nose clean, stay out of trouble, um, you know, build a good reputation and get along with people and prove yourself to be, you know, worthy of that position. The LAPD in those years, bad reputation, very tough to kind of um, maneuver those elements. Was it difficult for you in dealing with um, those outside kind of influences? Not really, because you just take it with a grain of salt. You know, you understand that you're, you know, everything that you do has to do with conflict. You know, that's the life of a police officer is dealing with conflict. So you get accustomed to the idea of not being liked, being accused of things um, that you hadn't done, uh, just out of the nature of opposing conflicts. And so you kind of take it uh, with a grain of salt. Um, however, there were times when the department really had done, you know, people within the department had done horrible things that shed an unfavorable light upon all of us. That was the most difficult thing to do to, to the, the most difficult storm to weather is that when somebody else um, uh, does something that reflects on all, all of you, that is a really, you know, a, a difficult thing to accept and deal with. How and under what circumstances were you assigned or did you join the multi-law enforcement task force that was assigned to investigate the deaths of uh, Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls? 
Well, I've been actually working in those multi-agency configurations for the majority of my career. After I got out of patrol, I immediately went into, as I mentioned, an anti-gang unit. And then within that anti-gang unit, I was part of a multi-agency anti-gang task force. And then the same thing with narcotics. When I went to narcotics, I worked a multi-regional narcotics task force. So I was always working in these environments with different agencies collaboratively trying to solve cases. And so when I got to um, invited, um, I guess recruited to work the biggie and to, you know, ultimately the Tupac case, it was because I had all that task force experience that I was one of the people selected because we knew we needed a multi-agency perspective on that case. And how did that process take shape in terms of what were the steps that you were assigned in the very, very beginning? First of all, it was just to get up to speed with all of the investigative material that was already in place, all of the previous investigation. And it was volumes. I mean, it took, you know, a couple of months really just to digest all of the investigative work that had already been done and then build a strategy on what to do that hasn't been done. And so it was a, it was a, you know, a lot of sitting around and discussing and strategizing and putting together flow charts and it was building a plan essentially. Were the goals or the objectives of the task force to have somebody prosecuted or was it simply to kind of shed light on what was um, something that nobody knew much about? Well, you know, of course there was, there was a lot of people who knew a lot about it. By the time I had gotten involved in the task force, nearly 10 years had gone by. So it was 2006, Tupac was killed in 1996, Biggie in 1997. So um, there was a lot of information, a lot of it erroneous, but a lot of information was floating around that people thought they knew, you know, what had happened and had pretty good ideas and theories about what had taken place. And so we had to kind of, you know, reinvestigate a lot of that and figure out, you know, um, whether or not there was any validity to this multitude of claims. And of course, our responsibility, our, our goal is to always hold somebody responsible and to hold somebody accountable. And so that, you know, that's the main goal is like, let's bring this, let's bring this to justice and hold people responsible. So um, unfortunately, you know, the lack of time, the passage of time worked against us. Can you tell me a bit about the process, the evidence gathering process, information gathering process, of what you went through, what your role and what the role of the task force in general kind of came out to be? Well, you know, keep in mind that, uh, you know, if we're talking about physical evidence, you know, we, all of that was acquired, you know, back at the scene at the time and then anything that could be acquired after that. And it's just a methodical way of making sure there's a chain of evidence, making sure there's a way of tracking things, trying to keep things uncorrupted. Um, so that they aren't brought into question later. Um, but for testimonial evidence, that's really what we were after. We were looking for testimonial evidence, witnesses, people that knew things that had never come forward in order to shed light on an old case. And how did you go about finding interviewing witnesses? Certainly, um, folks, I'm assuming would lawyer up and obviously, unless you're under arrest, right, there's no compulsion. So it must have been difficult, especially given the passage of time. Yeah, and 
in in the nuance of the subculture we were dealing with we knew we were dealing with gang members uh we knew that oftentimes the associates of the victims were involved in a criminal element and when you're doing that you understand that the you know they're not always the most cooperative and forthright people and for and for from their standpoint you know um it's justifiable nobody wants to be labeled a snitch suffer the consequences of being you know on the streets of la and having a snitch package you know, on you. So, you know, you have to deal with all of these obstacles, uh, but, you know, you're not dealing necessarily with the most forthright, honest people, um, either because they're afraid of testifying or just because they don't um, necessarily respect the process of the criminal justice system. Many of them want to just take, you know, take justice into their own hands. And that's exactly what we saw with the gang conflict that ensued after the murder of Tupac. Tell me a bit about that. After Tupac was murdered, you know, Suge Knight immediately knew exactly who was responsible. He knew that the young man that had uh, sucker punched, um, I'm sorry, the young man that uh, Tupac Shakur had sucker punched at the MGM was, uh, was responsible for the murder and his crew. And so they set about to um, wreak, wreak, you know, to uh, seek revenge. And so a, a huge gang war started between Suge Knight's gang associates, the mob Piru, and the associates of the young man that had been sucker punched, but and he was a gang member named Orlando Anderson and his crew, which were Southside Crips. And these guys already had historic opposition and conflict. And so it was already, it was just fueling a fire that it was already stoked. Did you find that the high profile nature of this case, the actors involved um, served as an impediment? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there were people out there, witnesses, that were really just um, uh, grandstanding in order to bring attention to themselves. You know, they just wanted to take the opportunity to get public attention and they started to spew stories um, that were not necessarily reliable and accurate. And that always creates a problem because you start wasting time, you know, investigating false leads. And so, you know, we had to deal with that element. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, it was difficult for a lot of reasons. In general, right? Being a homicide detective, you must have been a part of many high profile investigations. Is it incredibly more difficult to navigate those waters if there's media attention, if there's press attention? Well, there is absolutely because the press, you know, they just want to release information to the public. And oftentimes, and especially the press these days, um, don't care necessarily whether that information is reliable and accurate, they can care whether they care whether it's sensational. And when you release information to the press, that can oftentimes work against the integrity of your investigation. You know, you don't want to tip people off that maybe you have this particular lead or maybe you're looking at this particular person. And so you have to really try to manage all of these um, loose ends. And the media oftentimes doesn't help, but oftentimes they do help. You know, when you are at dead ends and you don't have leads and you need to go to the media in order to get public attention, to get public interest, hoping that somebody will call up and, and provide some leading information. So it's always just a, it's a real balancing act. And obviously the high profile cases um, are going to be the most difficult to manage. Was there ever a thought of cooperating with federal authorities, authorities from other states, um, you were a multi-law enforcement task force, right? So I'm assuming 
uh, that came into play. Yes, absolutely. We were a federally, um, for lack of a better term, ordained uh, task force. We had the FBI, the DEA, we had customs, we had the United States Attorney's Office. Many of the elements of our task force were from federal agencies. So, you know, and that provides a tremendous amount of resources. So we were really happy to, uh, you know, to, to collaborate on a, um, a large local and federal jurisdictional level. There are always discussions about how difficult it is for these agencies to work together because you have to share information and obviously folks want the praise and other such things. Is that something that you found in this case? Well, there are, you know, within the just, within the community of law enforcement, you know, you obviously get your fair amount of egos. And unless you have a really well laid out and respected kind of chain of command, then things can get a little bit heated and, you know, people um, start to beat, you know, start to march to the beat of their own drum and it can start to work against it, itself as far as the efficiency of a task force. So, but as long as everybody respects like, hey, he's the lead investigator, this is my job. It's to do this one thing, and I just need to focus on that. And then to collectively, we bring all of that um, effectiveness together. And so it, 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 it can be complicated, um, but personalities can also, you know, work for or against you. So it's just you got to just manage each and every case um, with whatever it comes with. What surprised you the most? What element was the one where? you kind of would throw your hands up and say, oh, I never thought this would happen. I never thought this witness would talk to me. I never thought this agency would be as cooperative. Anything of that sort. I don't know if I remember too many surprises in the case. Um, you know, we already knew that putting cases on people would compel them to cooperate. That's just a longstanding, you know, reality in law enforcement. People, um, when they're faced with, their own consequences they are more likely to then be willing to talk to you in order you know for self-preservation so to speak uh, so those were no surprises getting people to talk really weren't surprises um hmm. yeah I, I i don't recall anything actually being com completely out of the blue talked a second ago about the media right and how Again, particularly these days, right, there's this reputation that the media colors facts and, and kind of um, not fabricates stories, but reports on things in a disingenuous way. Is that something that in the mid-90s when this took place and even in the mid-2000s when you were investigating, is that something that played a huge role? Well, certainly not so much then as it is now. Um, in a lot of media agencies these days, and especially with social media, um, nothing's vetted. They don't vet information. They just put out information. They do a calculated risk. Well, what's the chance of us saying this and getting sued? Well, there's a pretty good chance that we won't get sued. So if it's sensational and they feel newsworthy, they'll put it out regardless of the ramifications. And so this is, you know, I, I don't think that media reporting is as responsible now as it was perhaps um, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Do you think that the modification of the defamation laws would help, right? I mean, effectively, the idea is you can't sue anybody, right, if there's 
a falsehood about a noteworthy or public figure unless there's malice, right? Unless there's intent, you know that somebody's reporting something with falsehood. Um, would that help law enforcement investigations? Well, I'll tell you what it comes down to is money. And to sue somebody, you have to start out with money. And oftentimes the victims of defamation and slander um, and libel aren't in a position to even defend themselves. You know, because you have to first start out with money in order to pursue these these um, these injustices. So that that's that's one thing. And you know, you're talking about perhaps going against you know huge media corporations that have multi-million dollar lawyers on retainer all the time. So you have to really be practical about like, yeah, this is terrible, it's wrong, but what can you really do about it in this day and age? Right now, you. If I were to nail you down, which is impossible, in terms of the conclusions that were drawn from your investigation, which is at this point well over a decade old, what would those be? Well, it's not hard to nail me down. I'm very resolute about it. I'm absolutely 100% positive that the individual that Tupac Shakur had sucker punched at the MGM prior to his murder, um, Orlando Anderson from the Southside Crips, along with members of his gang, sought and, 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 and you know, uh, hunted down Tupac Shakur and then shot and killed him. Uh, that's just that simple. That created, a, you know, a further intensity to the gang flip conflict that was already taking place. And Suge Knight um, decided to take it upon himself to retaliate for that act. Unfortunately, there was erroneous information, again, from the media that Biggie Smalls had been in Las Vegas at the time that Tupac was shot, that Biggie Smalls was the close associate of these Crip gang members that shot Tupac, and that Biggie Smalls had provided the gun that was used. That erroneous information is what got Biggie killed. That's why he was targeted. And so Suge Knight took it upon himself to hire his own hitman and retaliate for the murder. And what were the details of that process? The details of the process was that Suge Knight had reached out to a female confidant of his that actually was one of his baby mamas. And uh, we refer to her as Teresa Swan. That's an alias for her real name. Um, she, she then, because Suge Knight was in jail at the time this was happening. So um, she and Suge Knight's lawyer use the attorney client privilege um, situation for her to be able to sit and talk to Suge Knight without being monitored by deputies or you know she could speak with him confidentially so to speak he was he told her go out get a hold of this particular individual he's a gang member named Wardell Faust and I said this is what I want done ask Wardell what he wants in return an agreement was made there was a transfer of money and then Wardell Faust lied in wait for Biggie to leave the Peterson Automotive, um, the Peterson Automotive Museum. That's a mouthful. Peterson Automotive Museum, and uh, and pulled up alongside of him and shot and killed him. Um, both both of these drive-by shootings were very very similar in nature. The way Tupac was shot by a gang member is almost identical to the way that Biggie was shot by a gang member in Los Angeles. And this whole thing ultimately boiled down to uh, um, gang activity. What's interesting and what a lot of people um, discuss surprisingly 
is when Tupac was murdered, it was, it's an unsolved crime, obviously, uh, technically speaking. And this mm -hmm. happened after a Mike Tyson fight in mm -hmm. Las Vegas. Those two things are so inconsistent in the minds of folks because the amount of people here, the amount of attention is just unbelievable to think about, right? Law enforcement has solved crimes that seemed unsolvable. And this is just unbelievable to think about, really. Yeah. Well, you've got to keep in mind, people have today the idea that there's just cameras everywhere and that there's communications that are readily available. And, you know, we're talking about the mid 90s and, you know, they didn't have the, the number of, for instance, traffic cameras at intersections. And even if you look at that old grainy CCT, um, you know, um, security camera footage of Tupac getting into the fight with Orlando Anderson. I mean, that's the highest quality system that was available at the time, and it's horrible. And that's at a major resort in Las Vegas. So, you know, technology was not all that helpful back then. Fortunately, we did capture that fight on, on, on video. Um, but the location where this took place was off the strip. You know, it wasn't in this really crowded and congested area. It was off the strip. And, they, uh, you know, they uh, unfortunately encountered one another and the Crips just took advantage of that opportunity and, and that timing. And uh, Orlando Anderson took the gun that he had been provided and leaned out the window and started to shoot into the BMW and ultimately fatal wounds hit Tupac. In general these days, right? When you talk about trials, conviction rates um, or lack thereof, uh, the idea, at least partially in my opinion, is that investigative techniques have been so advanced over time, right? Cell phones, cameras, listening devices, uh, other devices that could pick up information that was impossible even 20 years ago, right? Is that something that you think plays a role? Oh, absolutely. Um, 100%. Today, you know, license plates are getting caught on cameras all over the place. And that gets fed into, um, you know, a, a, a general, um, you know, collective system where you know nowadays I can I can go online and run a license plate as a private investigator and find out where that car's been all over you know all over the country really and those type of immediate resources weren't necessarily available back in those in the in the mid-90s um, of course cell phones cell phone cameras people's readiness to use them always you know this shooting caught everybody off guard right you know it just happened like that well, with, if this was today, there would have been cell phone cameras looking at different angles, you know, whether it was Biggie leaving the Peterson um, or people on the strip seeing Tupac, all of that stuff really would have been much more um, uh, likely captured, which would have provided some information and some clues. But ballistic investigations have improved. Um, uh, different types of uh, um, different types of what we call covert investigations are are more readily available. So there's there's a lot of things today that may have changed the outcome of that investigation back in the '90s. Does that kind of thing make the job of law enforcement easier, quote unquote, or are there just different battles? It's just different battles. It's just different battles. You know we. We operated back then with a bit more liberally or liberty, a little bit more unrestrained. 
nowadays everything is you know a plethora of of, of paperwork and processes and approval um, um, type of um, they, they inhibit you oftentimes because in investigations expediency oftentimes is, is really important and when you're sitting and waiting for days for a warrant to be signed or to be approved and you know you're losing evidence um, that stuff can you know can can also be a hindrance um, but it's just different today I, I think the entire law enforcement culture is changing for the better um, but it's just different times. You know, the things that we did back then would never be tolerated today. You mentioned that the environment's changing for the better, in what way? Well, just that, I think cops are becoming much more equipped to be social agents. You know, they're dealing with societal problems that aren't necessarily criminal. And, you know, and with and, and getting a better understanding of mental health issues and looking at drugs, not so much all the time as just this really is just a, a serious criminal action. And so, you know, cops today are becoming more sensitized to cultural issues and learning how to deal better with those differences in, uh, you know, in, 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 different, in different cultural climates. So I think the cops today are being better trained, better prepared to deal with conflict. You know, back in my day, conflict was dealt with typically just by a use of force. And nowadays they're, they're learning how to better verbalize, de-escalate and those type of things. But that also has its own consequences because today cops are so apprehensive to use force when it's immediately needed and necessary they make themselves vulnerable. I mean, the amount of cops being shot today, that would, that's unprecedented. You know, you look at how many cops have been shot in the last five years, and then you go back and look at how many cops were shot in this country in the 1990s. I mean, these, these numbers aren't even in the same ballpark, you know, because cops today are a, a little bit more targeted. Uh, I think society's a little bit more reckless. And I think that cops nowadays are afraid to do the things they necessarily need to do to protect themselves, just because when they do use force, it's going to be micro scrutinized. And, and, and these things happen like this, you know, this isn't where you sit around and think about this and then have an, a plan of action. This stuff unfolds in, in, in a matter of, you know, seconds at best. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough game to be in today. I think it's really tough, but I also think that generationally, the cops in the 70s were better than the 60s, the 80s, the 70s, the 90s, the 80s. I think they just keep improving and hoping to be able to become more efficient and effective in combating criminal activity and keeping the public safe. Just generally, right? The idea is to strike a balance between individual rights, right? The preservation of individual rights. So uh, police can't use force that's unnecessary with the ability of police to maintain order. An incredibly delicate, difficult balance, I would imagine. Yeah, and we're still figuring out how to improve that. Um, it's, it is, and it, I think it's always gonna be, um, but until the public and law enforcement starts to collaborate better together, 
and all have the same the same ultimate goals and and expectations. Um, but it's 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 a long and drawn out and difficult conversation for a lot of reasons. Now, once your investigation was completed and you released the book about your investigation, how was that uh, received by the law enforcement community and the general public? Well, I think the gen general public, you know, had a huge appetite for knowing what had happened. And even though there were theories out there, these theories were completely unsubstantiated. And um, so I think that the, the public wanted something that they could kind of um, sink their teeth in. They wanted something that would that felt true. And so I think it was very helpful to release all the information that we discovered in the investigation to the public by way of the book and, and afterwards the documentary. Um, the department wasn't favorable to it. That's why I had to leave. I, I retired so that I could write the book because otherwise it would have been a conflict of interest because I'm technically talking about a, uh, an unsolved case and they don't, you know, they don't look kindly on you going out and speaking publicly about unsolved cases. So there was some controversy about that, but at the same time, I think the department was very thankful that we were doing damage control against all these false allegations lodged at the department claiming that they had been somehow involved or responsible for Biggie's murder. So we exonerated those false claims by proving what actually happened. So I think that it was bittersweet for the department. Do you see anybody ever being held accountable for this or prosecuted? Obviously it's been so many years, right? Um, but you do hear cases once in a while where there's a cold case right after 20, 30, 40 years, a suspect is found somewhere uh, certainly these days, the suspects are limited for a variety of reasons, right? Um, do you ever see that happening, ever? I absolutely do not. I think Biggie Smalls, uh, the attorney representing the Biggie Smalls estate put it best. He says, these are not unsolved crimes. These are unprosecuted crimes. And I wholeheartedly agree. And I think it'll always remain that way. I am a little bit, you know, um, I am a little bit, I'm looking for the proper word, just bewildered that Las Vegas PD hasn't arrested Keefe D. I mean, he's out there on a variety of times. He's the individual that was in the white Cadillac along with his nephew, Orlando Anderson, who was the shooter of Tupac. You know, Keefe D has publicly confessed to these murders and we corroborated his confession. You know, he's written a book about it. He's gone on podcasts and, you know, he's, he's, He's brazen and braggart about it. And yet Las Vegas feels that his arrest is not necessary. Um, of course, his arrest would clear that crime. And regardless of whether you can successfully prosecute, that's just a different question. You know, it's going to be hard to prosecute a guy just based on his own incriminating confession. You know, everybody else is dead. You know, all the other witnesses and co-conspirators are dead. So you've got a situation where you you know, you can arrest this guy, clear the case, set history right, and whether he's successfully prosecuted or not is, is you know, that has to be, that has to be attempted um, regardless. Do you think the reason, uh, we both know, right, in order to prosecute somebody, prosecutors have to have a good faith belief they can convict beyond a reasonable doubt. You think mm -hmm. maybe that's why they're not pursuing this? Absolutely. No, you're 100%. It comes down to the probability of success. 
and that's a that's a work theory it's a business model that i don't agree with you should you know i understand that you need to do that because you don't want to expend a lot of resources and money because you have a you know you have a limited budget so you go after the cases that you're confident that you can prove and the ones that you don't think you can prove you continue to try to work on and build them up to a point where you're you're confident however there are times when i think you just need to do the right thing for the right thing and this is one of those times don't worry so much about whether you successfully prosecute him. Arrest him, clear the case, and set history straight so that in future generations, people can look back and go, you know, there, was, there was closure in the murder of Tupac Shakur. There wasn't justice, but there was closure. Now, what are you doing these days? I know you work as a private investigator. Tell me about your work. So I, I do a variety of general investigations. I have my own company and I stay relatively busy um, just, you know, conducting investigations for um, both corporate and, you know, personal entities. Uh, but really the thing I've got my teeth sunk into right now that I'm really, really trying to develop is the story of a guy named Christopher Dorner, who was a LAPD um, officer for a short period of time. Um, he was terminated for a, you know, for a variety of reasons, and then he decided to retaliate against the department. He wrote a manifesto and then went on a killing spree for 10 days back in February of 2013. It was one of the biggest manhunts in California history. So he had gone out and killed several people, including three police officers, and, uh, and shot a civilian female. And it's a really interesting story about, you know, he saw the world through the prism of racism. And he thought that everything that happened to him was a result of systemic racism. And so he went out and decided to just kind of arbitrarily kill as many cops as he could. And he published a hit list of about 40 people um, that he was targeting. It's a very, very interesting case. And it was, uh, uh, you know, for 10 days, Southern California was in a state of absolutely dread and fear. So I'm, I'm trying to get that story put together because I think it's relevant today as it was then. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. So hopefully that'll come to fruition. It's a really great, it's a really interesting story. Well, good luck with that. I appreciate Thank you. your time. Thank you so much. Um, again, very much appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, say hello to all your students for me. <laughs>